Welcome to the Brookie and Virgo podcast. A little bit a different introduction, which we'll explain in a moment. But uh, I'm Peter Bruckner, otherwise known as Brookie, and uh, Darren Burgess, otherwise known as Burjo. How are you, Burjo? Good, Brookie, and yourself? Good, good. Now, I'm not sure whether you've escaped from the little sort of AFL bubble you've been in for the last uh, few months, but uh, we've recently had a major sporting event called the Winter Olympics. Did you, uh, did you catch up on that at all? I did catch it briefly. Oh, but, uh, yeah, probably not as as uh, as experienced in this domain as as you could self and others. No, well, we heard uh, the intro is obviously the uh, Australian national anthem, which gets played when we win gold medals at uh, things like the Olympic Games. Um, now, I got a quiz question for you: How many Winter Olympics gold medals has Australia won? How many had we won before this recent one? Um. Uh, I must admit, you've stumped me there. And as a patriotic Aussie, I'm a bit embarrassed, but uh, I'm going to go with three. Three? That's uh, uh, not bad. You've undersold us a little bit. There's actually been five. Okay. Um, yeah, there was Elisa Camplin in the Aerials in 2006, and then, of course, Stephen Bradbury, who's probably the most famous, <laughs> the infamous uh, gold medal, uh, come from nowhere, and that also in 2006. And then, uh, and then we've had a, uh, a male mogul skier, Dale Beck Smith, in uh, in uh, 2010, and uh, and in 2014, I think it was, we had um, two gold medals: Tora Bright in the snowboard and Lydia Lassiter in the uh, in the aerial. So we'd had five, um, but as you may also be aware, we now have six because yes. uh, Chikara Anthony. Uh, won the women's moguls at uh, at Beijing, and our guest today is one of Jakara's coaches, Katie Blamey. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Um, Katie, we always start by uh, by getting people to tell their story because it's an interesting journey. So tell us a little bit about your story. Um, you're still a young coach, but you've transitioned from being an athlete to a coach. So take us through. When did you? When did you start uh, skiing? Let's start with that, shall we? Yeah, well, um, definitely started skiing at a very young age. I think my family started heading up to Mount Buller when I was two. Um, Every weekend, you know, get in the car, go up there. And um, my family were avid skiers. Mum was a ski instructor at the ski school and uh, me and my siblings would ski every weekend. Uh, So kind of played a lot of sports as a kid, not just skiing. That was definitely the winter sport uh, chosen, but um, water polo, netball, swimming, a lot of different sports. Uh, I remember your mum bringing you to, to come and see me with a water polo injury, I think, and telling me how you were going to play water polo for Australia, and uh, <laughs> that was in between skiing for Australia and various other things. But Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah mum had high hopes. Sorry, mum. Um, yeah, so probably got to the age of 16, and I'd actually made the yeah, national squads for under-16s for both skiing and water polo. So I kind of had to make a choice there. I yep. think you were involved in that one maybe. So um, that was difficult, but uh, I did choose the skiing aspect and uh, went down that road. Right. And tell us about your, your own skiing career. Yeah, I uh, wasn't a great athlete. Definitely wasn't a great athlete. Tried my best, but... Um, uh, was on the development team, um, skiing overseas for Australia, and 07 kind of blew my knee, um, uh, ACL, so that wasn't ideal. Uh, 
continue to keep going with that though um, till I was about 21 and was also studying at the same time, um, probably working part-time job too. So I was trying to do too many things if I look back now, but um, uh, skied until, yeah, tried to get back on the team, um, wasn't quite successful. So decided to kind of hang up the boots as an athlete. Um, and uh, was finishing my studies and kind of thought, oh, you know, the, the squads had asked for my help in coaching while I was finishing studies. So I was studying um, sports science at Deakin and um, yeah, just kind of fell into coaching. Never really was the plan, um, and but absolutely loved it. Was assisting a lot of the club programs in Australia, both at Mount Buller and Perisher, and then started some overseas camps, um, training out of Colorado. So we'd go over there for three months of the year and then uh, uh, it wasn't until I was doing my master's degree, I'd kind of signed up for that and uh, doing a master's of human nutrition and had a year to go and had some spare time on my hands, surprisingly, and decided to kind of go to America and get some experience over there. I wasn't sure if coaching was for me. It kind of the plan was to do uh, nutrition at that stage when I was uh, 25, 26 and thought, oh, I have a bit of a sea change and um, different culture and work with some different athletes and learn a lot about myself and kind of really fell in love with the coaching then and, and that was when I realized oh okay this is um, this is for me I really like this and enjoyed it the um, before that I'd been doing it to just help the community and the sport and give back to what skiing had given me as an athlete in Australia while I was studying but uh, Colorado was definitely a changing point for me in my career and um, decided on I kind of want to make a career of this and, and go down the coaching route so spent three years in Colorado coaching there and uh, had a great team of athletes over there um, learned a lot about myself being the head coach of a program um, kind of wearing a lot of different hats from strength and conditioning coach to nutritionist to psychologist to you know just trying to get uh, club athletes onto the national team over there. And then uh, just after Pyeongchang uh, Olympics, with the success the Mogul program had, um, the Australian team was in a position to um, hire another coach and they kind of put their hand up and said, oh, Katie would really love you to come back to Australia and, and work with uh, the team back here. We would love a female coach um, for you to work with Jakara. And so, uh, yeah, straight after Pyong, uh, Pyeongchang, I made my way back after the three years in the US and started working with the national team. And then, yeah, we did the four years into Beijing and here I am. <laughs> here I am. Tell, tell us about uh, the setup. Uh, I mean, you, you've got a squad of, of how many athletes and how many coaches and what are the roles of the coaches? Yeah, so we have 11 athletes on scholarship. Uh, it's run through the New South Wales Institute of Sport um, alongside um, the Olympic Winter Institute. So across those 11 athletes, we have a wide range from uh, 15, 16 year olds uh, to uh, development athletes through to World Cup 
uh, world champions, Olympic gold medalist, uh, gold medalist now, <laughs> a silver medalist, Matt Graham, mm. uh, world champion, Britt Cox. So from that, um, you know, we have, yeah, 27-year-olds through to, yeah, 15-year-olds. So it's a big range of athletes, but a small group. So we do work together alongside each other. And there's three coaches on staff. Um, our head coach, Steve Desovich, is from the US. And he um, has been with Australia uh, since day dot, really, since the Olympic Winter Institute started in 1995. And uh, he coached Dale Begg-Smith to gold. And I think that might have been Torino gold yeah, medal. Yeah, yeah. And then silver in uh, Vancouver. Um, but, yes, he... He, Des has been um, coaching, you know, Dale and followed by um, Britt and Matt. Uh, so uh, very successful uh, program for, for Australia and Steve Desovich is a big, was a big part of that. And then Peter McNeil, um, who I've coached alongside on and off uh, before I went away to the US and came back. And he is Jakara's coach lead coach for the part at Pyeongchang and then I kind of came in after already knowing Jakara uh to back into the system so we wear a lot of different hats though um some in the past sometimes we've had acrobatic specialists um and that that really helps us especially as the acrobatics have gotten harder um but at the, at the moment we don't have that Pete McNeil and myself wear those hats as well as uh, turn specialists as well. So there's um, being such a high, you know, skill specific sport. Yeah, we, we do wear a lot of different hats. And I suppose those who've watched the, uh, the, the moguls would understand that there's really two elements to it. There's the turns and then there's the aerials side yep. of it. There's two... Yeah, two aerial jumps in the uh, one up the top, one down the bottom. Yeah. Um, do, how do you split up the coaching roles? I mean, does one of you do aerials, one of you jumps, or how does it work? Um, it, yeah, it's not as simple as <laughs> as <laughs> sure it's not. we don't. Um, we when we're on the snow, uh, uh, I kind of take the lead on the acrobatics, and yep. I'm always standing at the top jump. That's normally the most difficult one, or where the most difficult trick is performed. Um, However, in the off-season, Peter McNeil and myself both manage the, the lead on the acrobatic side. Right. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it, when you think about it, it's pretty amazing that Australia could produce a uh, skiing uh, gold medalist. I mean, we basically have somewhere between two weeks and two months snow every year. <laughs> every year. Yeah, um, in a good season. In a good season, <laughs> Exactly. So tell us, I mean, obviously when, when there is snow, which is sort of July, August uh, in Australia, you're up at, uh, up at the snow at Perisher most of the time and, and uh, training there. But that leaves, you know, that 10 or 11 months uh, for the rest of the year. So take us through the, the pre and what, what, you, what do you do? I know you, we don't see you much in Melbourne, so you must be uh, yep. travelling a fair bit. Yeah, it, it definitely is. We are chasing the snow sometimes. Um, over the years, we've adjusted our schedule to try and figure it out. We're probably still figuring out to some extent, but yeah, we spend probably, we try and get six months on snow a year would be would be our goal. And depending on the level of athlete development level to the World Cup guys, maybe a little bit less as they're getting older and their bodies aren't coping. 
um, but we're looking for six months a year on snow and that would be two months in two to two and a half if we're in a good, in a good season year. in Australia yep. um, at Perisher where we have a great, uh, we did some earthworks just after Torino um, and built a full length Olympic sized mogul course, which is 250 meters long um, at Perisher called Topper's Dream uh, after one of our, my old coaches actually. And then, yeah, we will head um, overseas. We used to head to Zermatt, Switzerland for a month in October and ski on the glacier there. However, that glacier's, yeah, not in tip-top shape anymore. So um, we kind of really try and sandwich snow with then our dry land season and really always have every two months we're on snow so the athletes are never out of the boots too long. And then in between those, we will uh, train our acrobatics on the water ramp. So we've had, we have a water ramp facility uh, here in Victoria in Lilydale um, that's into a nice muddy dam. Um, that's been there since the 80s um, and it's it's a great facility it's where all our, our athletes have learned to jump um, however then we used to have to go overseas to train in a yeah, acrobatics facility with um, bigger jumps and aeration in the water uh, just to allow for less impact uh, oh, so what do you mean by aeration explain uh, that bubbles are coming out of the water similar to diving but on a much bigger Bigger scale, big right. bubbles, pretty much what you'd see in a in a hot tub, really. Um, so to that's break to the... stop. Yeah. So uh, without that, you'd hit the water with your skis on, and it would be pretty jolting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it allows us to do more numbers. Right. Um, but luckily enough, uh, we were able to build one of those facilities in our backyard, the Jeff Henke water ramp facility up in Brisbane. So we now are lucky to call that home and our second training base. Uh, so we will look to do uh, three months on water. We're looking for 50 days, I would say, approximately, to um, on water practicing the acrobatics. So it's pretty much a dry slope. It's plastic. We call it meanies because if you were to fall over, they're quite mean, um, with sprinklers on top. Um, spraying to, you know, make the surface run smooth. Mm. Um, the athletes will ski down the slope and go off the jump, practice their acrobatics and you know, land in the water. But they could, if they land on their side or their head, it's, it's okay, they're safe. And with the number of athletes we have in, in Australia, we can't afford to have them land like that on snow. So yeah, practice that. And then we sandwich some strength and conditioning in, in there in between, but it's, it's a tough schedule. It's, it's a lot of time away from home and and, oh, yeah. that's probably a good time to bring Virgo in. I'm, I'm really curious about the talent identification, how you go through that process. I imagine there's not a large pool of of talent here in Australia. I might be underselling it. No, um, no. But, yeah, how, how do you identify a, a talented um, – you know, a talented or any any part of the the skiing school in the in the Winter Olympics. How do you identify that? I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, in terms of across all winter sports, we have a great um, talent ID program, and we we use what the interschools, the Victorian interschools, and the national interschools program run out of um, New South Wales as well to identify young athletes, ten to twelve. 
um, is kind of targeted at that age for all winter sports. Um, so they, they look at results at that big inter-schools program run out at Mount Buller, which is the school skiing program. And I think they get 5,500 Victorians at that one. So there's a pool to um, – there's some athletes there. But uh, it, it's a tough one. Uh, for aerials, you know, they really use gymnastics. It's a big part of it, um, a gymnastics program. And they're looking at diving as well now. We've got our first diving recruit actually up in Brisbane. So all the gold medal, like Alyssa Camplin and Lydia and, and Jackie Cooper, all came from, uh, from gymnastics. Yes, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but for us it's a bit different because we have the acrobatics element, but you also need to yep. be a good skier. So it's it's quite a tough one. We've um, it's it really most of our athletes are, have come through the inter schools program, and uh, moguls and the success we've had has really helped us recently find younger athletes because they know what mogul skiing is now and they'll, you know, up in Perisher, they'll see Matt Graham or Britt Cox and Jakara skiing and say, I want to do that. So that's kind of really helped us in the past, but it's a difficult one. So if you guys have any suggestions, <laughs> please let me know. I, I guess following on from that, how did you know Jakara was so good? Yeah, um, Jakara, um, Similar to myself, grew up at Mount Buller skiing from a young age. Her parents worked up there. She would head up every weekend and ski and uh, attended the Mount Buller Primary School for Term 3, which um, some uh, locals do when they work up there. Um, she came up through the ski, Mount Buller Ski School, Team Extreme, and then joined Mount Buller, um, Team Buller Riders and... She was a young kid just lo who loved skiing, loved skiing and was clearly athletic. She played a lot of sports and she, I think for me that stood out the most is the way she stands on the ski and her basic position and stance. She was a confident skier. She'd obviously done a lot at a young age, which definitely helps. And she'd had good uh coaching and education from from such a young age through the Mount Buller Ski School that at the age of 12 when she began skiing moguls um she was it was very clear she was yeah she was a good little good little skier yeah and when did you you know when did you first think the school could uh, could really be something very special um i would say it was before i left um australia there was a season uh, Jakara had landed, unfortunately, in a backflip and really scared herself. She was she was 12, uh, no, 13, 13, I would say. And um, it, she really um, had a lot of fear and, and refused to flip for a year, actually. Um, and then she came back and fought through the fear and flipped and we finally got her flipping on snow uh, a week before an event. And then she went to that event and won. And to turn it around so quickly, um, it has, you know, is, in, is incredible. To someone not be able to flip for a year to suddenly do a backflip on snow and then win an event. It, it was the improvement rate was astronomical. So I think that was for me the, the turning point. I was like, wow, if this girl you know, continues and can fight through th that level of fear and, and with that amount of talent, there's no stopping her. So I think that would be the point. <laughs> mm.
Interesting. Fear is obviously, a, you know, I mean, it's a massive uh, thing. I mean, I think in all, pretty much all skiing events, but I mean, mogul skiing is is scary. I mean, it's bloody steep, uh, <laughs> a lot of bumps. Yeah. Anyone who's skied would know that, you know, moguls is a is the ultimate challenge. And those uh, and those aerials, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, the acrobatics is uh, is pretty scary. Um, how how do you sort of work with them to? I mean, is it is it the athlete chooses the sport in that there are people who just don't have fear or but every everyone has fear that's how you manage it isn't mm. it? Yeah, and and I think that's actually been one of Jakara's biggest battles, uh, and it was myself as an athlete, and I think in the women's sport the way the acrobatics is going, it's um. It's the improvement rate from the last four years from Pyeongchang to Beijing was incredible uh, compared to the men who were doing similar tricks. They didn't really push the acrobatics. The women are, which is great to see, but that's, it's scary. And there's consequences if you, if it doesn't go well uh, and there's, there's injuries and um, so it comes risk and fear. So it's, um, I think that's why we really try and utilize our water ramps and our acrobatics and, and work through that. And with Jakara, especially uh, because of some of the fear and anxiety she had, um, in, uh, an athlete normally might do 500 jumps or an 800 jumps on water of a certain trick before they do them on snow. Oh. Jakara needed to do 1600. She needed to do, do that. something 1,600 times before they were tried on, on snow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, in Australia, we, d we don't have many athletes. So yeah. we're very probably one of the most cautious teams on the World Cup, mm. um, unlike uh, the Americans or the Japanese that have, you know, they'll just <laughs> call the next one up. It's, we unfortunately are not in that position. So we need to look after, look after oh, them. Crazy stuff. I want to talk a little bit about the last few months because you left Australia in what, October, November? Uh, November 1. November, yeah. yeah. And there was this COVID thing hanging over the whole season, really, for a start. You know, the Olympics were going to be in February. You, a, you didn't know where the Olympics would go ahead. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you know, there, uh, there was going to be obviously COVID testing at the Olympics. There was all these sort of stories about if you, if you get COVID, you know, in the two or three weeks before the Olympics, yeah. you know, you wouldn't be allowed to go to Beijing and so on. I mean, it must have been an incredibly stressful two or three months uh, leading up to... Uh, so how did, you know, what, what did you... What tactics did you use, I guess, to try to avoid COVID for start and, and, uh, and get people in the right sort of headspace, really, and, and to, to compete? Yeah. Um, it. We definitely learnt a lot the season before we obviously... We needed to go the season before to qualify for the Olympics as well as this season. So I think we'd learnt a bit the season before um, and and tweaked a couple of things. Um, I uh, When we left November 1, the one thing we knew was we weren't coming home. We were, we were on the road to the Olympics and I think that helped us because some other countries then got locked out of their country. So we, we had a plan knowing you, you can't see anyone, you're in this bubble. Um, if, if you needed to see family or family were fortunate enough to come overseas, uh, then they kind of needed to enter our bubble too. Um, we were very strict, no restaurants, no, uh, 
social it, gatherings. It was training, sleeping, eating in our bubble. Um, there's There was eight athletes, five staff. So hopefully you got along with someone <laughs> in that bubble. It's very small. Um, Travelled very safe. Um, always N95 mask, hand sanitise, all the normal things. And, and then just kind of stuck to ourselves really I think that was our biggest thing uh there's no game changing things there I think it was just uh I think that the scariest um sometimes was the the planes the the squished planes in Europe and I remember <laughs> flying over and we'd left Melbourne and by that stage Melbourne was was pretty good back in November and we were on a plane um Frankfurt to Helsinki and no one was wearing a mask and they'd just removed the rules of masks on planes. So that was a bit daunting, but we did our thing. We stuck to our rules. We had our team rules, no matter what country we were in. Um, the one thing we did is in America, we didn't go even into supermarkets, did all online shopping. And then, um, yeah, so no matter the country, we stuck to our rules and the the athletes were great. They just, you know, might not have agreed with some of the rules, but that was the team rule and that's what we did. And and we were lucky enough that no athlete, um, touch wood, still to this day, <laughs> um, hasn't had COVID um, and we just didn't want to afford, no athlete could afford to miss. We had a World Cup every week. So, and those World Cups were how you qualified for the Olympics. So, you, and it was tight, especially in the men. Um, they couldn't afford to miss a week. You, uh, originally, the Fist World Cup had a rule that if one person tested positive, the entire team also <laughs> was not allowed to compete. So that was tough. However, they did remove that rule um, this season, which was which was at least made it a little bit less stressful. And um, we tested uh, every three days in-house testing. Uh, and that was more so just a peace of mind too, yeah. you know, you're in altitude, you're in the mountains, you wake up with a dry throat, mm. you know, you haven't drunk enough water on the plane, whatever it might be that, um, that was definitely, um, for peace of mind, uh, that more than anything. And then I think the stress levels got a little bit higher as we entered the three week out the 30 day, we had a 30 day test. Um, we had to test 30 days. 14 days out, 96 hours out, 72 hours out before entering um, Beijing. And I think those little <laughs> checkpoints. Hanging on the results of those. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, people were refreshing their phones and, <laughs> and a thing. But uh, I think one thing we did well is we didn't really talk about it. Everyone oh, knew, yep. but you just, you just, we always say, you don't say the C word. We just, you know, you do our thing. We stick to the process, mm. control the controllables and what will happen will happen. You know, we can only do what we can do. We'll stay safe. Um, we definitely chose to get out of America pretty quickly there as um, we were meant to have a World Cup in Italy, which was cancelled. Uh, so 10 days leading um, out from Beijing, we spent in Finland, which was uh, in Ruka which is six hours north, north of Helsinki, very small ski resort. <laughs> you'd, you'd be lucky to run into someone in any way. There's no lift queues, there's nothing. So, um, yeah, and, and those, yeah, the tests as we led in got, yeah, a little bit more stressful, but we just kind of stuck to our process and and did what we could. 
you know. Mm. So you finally <laughs> landed in Beijing, you know, yep. after all these tests. And, and we, we heard, you know, horror stories about, you know, people being tested at the airport and, uh, you know, people sticking things up various <laughs> orifices and so on. I mean, what was your experience or the experience of the team when you arrived in those first few days in, uh, in Beijing? Yeah, well, first of all, getting into China was half of it. Obviously, no commercial flights going into Beijing. Um, we were lucky enough to be invited onto uh, Team Finland's charter flight, oh. which was very nice of them. Training, We were training in Finland right before. And so, yeah, it was all, um, it was a bit, uh, it was crazy, um, you know, we're, we're on this plane and Team Finland's in their uniform and, and we didn't even have our uniform yet. It's at the village <laughs> waiting for us. So they probably looked at us like, what are you doing? Um, and it, it was funny. Each team had their own process as well. Um, but uh, landing in Beijing, uh, we... Straight away, sitting on the tarmac, they were spraying our bags down. You could see them coming off the conveyor belt, off the plane, and they were, yeah, spraying our bags down with, I don't know what. <laughs> and then um, it was probably about a two-hour process just to get off the plane, do all the administration, the COVID testing, um, and all that, to then be processed and ready to leave the airport. And then we were escorted out of the terminal and onto the tarmac where all our bags had been sprayed in a in a lot and and then said, "Go get your bags and this is a, these are bags come off a um, a seven four seven so a lot of bags, and you had to find your bag, which I thought was quite a crazy process and then uh, we jumped on a bus and it's a three hour bus ride from Beijing airport to the Olympic village. And it took us about seven. <laughs> so, um, we luckily enough had been told there'd be no water, no food from landing to the Olympic village. Uh, so it took us, um, uh, it took us, um, seven hours in the bus and from land and we'd spent two hours processing. So it'd been a long time with no water and no food. We were, mm. we had, the AOC were great with that and had told us that was going to be the case. So we were lugging food around with us. However, the seven hour bus ride took so long because they were waiting for our tests to come oh, back. So they mm. just drove really slowly. <laughs> um, so by the time we got to the village, uh, we at least were cleared and to enter. So, uh, it it was it was a in, interesting process, and uh, luckily our bus ride was okay. But some some people's uh, buses, the toilet stops. Originally, they wouldn't even stop for a toilet stop mm. in seven hours. So it was it was an interesting arrival into the yeah. Olympics. And that was how many days before the start of comp your competition? Uh, six. 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 Yeah. So, yeah, we were only allowed to enter 48 hours prior to your first training day. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. And, look, I'm sure you know, many of our, our listeners would have followed the, the, uh, the competition. And uh, is it fair to say that coming into the Olympics, Jakara was probably the favourite or, or certainly one of the two or three favourites? Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, that's correct. There was... Uh, 
Perrine Lafont from France and Henri from Japan, and the three of them had been dominating the podium all season. It was you never they kept switching out first, second, third, um, but yeah. it was consistent three women on the podium, especially for the last four events. Right. Yeah. And obviously through that, there were, there were four rounds, if mm -hmm. you like, uh, and the first three rounds, Jakara was the leading uh, qualifier in all three of those mm -hmm. those rounds. Um, and so she uh, was then going to be last, um, so that the top qualifier is the last to go down the course. Yeah. And uh, I guess what, what interested me was that those – there was there was no advantage. Well, there wasn't really any advantage in the final to have been the to have won the first three rounds. You could have won those three, and bombed out in the final, and that was that was it. It all came down to that one run in the mm -hmm. final, which seems very harsh, but that's you know, that's <laughs> that's sport. <laughs> that's sport exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, take us through. Uh, what interests me is is almost the pressure of being the favourite. Mm. I mean, that is you know, really. Um, Difficult. I mean, how did you manage that with, with Jakara? Yeah, I, I think everything really went to plan with the first run being two days earlier. Um, you know, if you qualified in the top eight, you didn't have to do the second qualification, which would then have been done on the finals day. So we the plan was to win the first qualification. Not only then you save yourself a run on the finals day, it meant one less run you had to, to ski um, on the medal day, um, but we wanted to set the bar that that she was here, she meant business, and it's she's number one. And at the end of the day, it's a judge sport too, so you're kind of going, yep. hello judges, I'm here and this is it. So um, that was definitely the goal, was to win qualifications. Um, some people, the favourites, might just want to put a run down and secure their spot and that was it, but that wasn't ours. So... Uh, yeah, she that all went to plan, and that was that was awesome. Saved herself having to perform in uh, qualification two, um, and then as we went through final one, final two, and final three on the medal day, it um, it really did just go to plan. I always think back and think back the last four years that we had a plan, and it, you know you never think a plan will work sometimes. <laughs> I think you know you said. You set the bar high, and and you, and and it it really um, it it went to plan. And what is so funny is at the previous uh, world championships in Deer Valley, as well as uh, the last World Cup leading in in um, Deer Valley as well. Actually, uh, two different seasons. Jakara had qualified first; she'd qualified first into finals, and so she'd always gone first, first. And then she came second, Ooh. first, first, then she came third. And so we're sitting, I think it was going through um, all of our heads. Okay, <laughs> she's gone first, first. And so as she went into final three, um, I think, no, we didn't talk about it. No one, no one said anything, but I think I look back now and, and all the work she's done and, and she really was her own competitor. You know, it was... It was hers to lose. Um, she just needed to do her run and her performance throughout the entire week was miles above anyone else and, and so just stuck to the plan and did her run and even improved from 
uh, final one and final two where perhaps she was um, a little messy out of top air or not quite as big as or put the jump right where we wanted it to go she made the adjustment and and that was her run yeah so how um how did you prepare um sort of physically during the uh from first first run to final is how does she recover and um you know your background or you you had an interest in nutrition is there any anything in uh, specifically that she does which you know other sports could learn from in between events you know whether it's recovery uh, some might meditate yoga stretching ice baths probably not necessary there what, what <laughs> yeah recovery? no we actually were doing ice baths in the village um the the thing with jakara as well um yeah she, I think, came home after Q1, actually did a strength session because she's looking to go on uh, and and finish the World Cup tour. So <laughs> we, she actually put a, a strength session in there and then had the day off the next day. Um, you know, there were five days training. We chose not to train all five days. Some countries did. Um, we really um, tried to, you know, work out exactly what we would do in the lead up to the event so she could get those recovery days in. Um, uh, at the end of a, a, the competition day or, or a training day in the village, it was, yeah, come home, light spin. Um, she loves the uh, uh, boots, the Normatex, loves those as a recovery uh, process for her. And then she's a big... Uh, yoga is completed every day for her and most of our athletes we've had some back issues um, in the past and we've found yoga mobility a lot of athletes are, are quite tight uh, in the thoracic so yoga is a daily recovery for all our athletes um, something we've really put in the program in the last four years so and then nutrition uh, Jakara has worked a lot on her nutrition in the last four years she she struggled to keep the weight on through through a season especially in the cold environments the long days out there uh so she used to get sick quite easily so that was, has been a big focus for her um and we were lucky enough in the village to have um the dietitians and unfortunately the the dining hall wasn't amazing in the village um i only went once and after that i i stuck to the australian headquarters and our dietitians did a great job of cooking on two electric fry pans for 50 of us in the in the Aussie headquarters so we were very lucky there and the the uh, day uh, or the moments leading up to the event obviously uh, the final there was obviously a fair bit of pressure and um, as a favorite as you mentioned uh, does she have a specific sort of pre uh, event routine that she goes through did you notice anything different um yeah, it's obviously the, well probably the biggest event of, of her life mm. did she uh yeah did she just go through a normal process a normal routine yeah interesting she uh pre-event routine um this is quite a unique one we've found if we if she stays busy um and and doesn't think about it is the best thing for her so puzzles is uh, a big one and we actually had learnt from the men's event the night before that the timing doesn't always go to plan, even at a at the Olympics. So 
Originally, we'd planned not to have her even come out when the qualification two was on and stay home because of the cold and didn't need to sit around for an hour. But the men's event ran late and the finals training was cut short. So we were able to take that from the men's and say, OK, we need to come up early and, and, and sit around, unfortunately, because you just don't know what time it will start. And uh, so she sat inside doing um, a jigsaw puzzle um, <laughs> while the women's Q2 was going on uh, in the athlete lounge. And then for her, she's done so much work in the lead up in the last three or four years um, of just uh, mental preparation. And for her, it's confidence. It's backing herself, knowing um, she can do what she needs to do and her ability um, and not really to focus on on the result itself, just her performance. Um, so she doesn't really look at the scores after each run. She will just um, talk to Pete uh, down the bottom. Uh, and most of the time he doesn't even show her her run um, on the video anymore. He'd just make a couple of technical adjustments. Um, and then by the time she gets back up to me, we'll, we'll talk it through and what the adjustments are and don't tend to labor on it too much. And then, uh, kind of just keep her mind somewhere else most of the time, to be honest. And I think the funniest thing was the finals leading in. You ask if something was different, Berger, I, the, uh, if anything, she was more relaxed than I've ever seen her before. And I thought she was sitting up, up the top before the first final. And I thought she was just going to fall asleep in the, in the <laughs> chair, in the, in the athlete lounge. Um, they have, they had a TV of the broadcast in the lounge. So, that could have been distracting, but uh, she kind of looked like a little kid having a wobbly because she was sitting in the chair with her back facing the TV broadcast with um, some sound cancelling headphones on. Uh, Vance Joy, I think, is her, her choice. And then um, just looked like she was going to take a nap. And then I, I think as we went through the night in each round, a little more nerves, you could tell. Um, and I tend to just... Uh, talk a bit of nonsense up there more than anything. Oh, and you're I, good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm good at that. I think right before our last run I was talking, uh, I looked up actually and I realised there's no stars in the sky. And I said to her, do you think that's because we're under these bright lights, pretty much the MCG lights it felt <laughs> like? Or, you know, is it the pollution in China? And and so we're, we're standing there, I think the camera was on us and we're both looking up at the sky <laughs> and they must have thought, what are they doing? So... Um, and that was quite interesting because, um, you know, the reigning gold medalist, Perrine Lafont, would appear to have changed everything in her pre-comp routine. Suddenly her sports psychologist was at the top. I've never seen her at the top of a course. I don't think she skis. Um, and, you know, uh, it, there was just, it seemed, but we just kept it the same, kept it the same, what we normally do. And, and so, yeah. So your role is you're at the top. Mm -hmm. We saw you on the you know at the top of the uh, top of the uh, the run every every time, and, and Pete was at, at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean you you said that uh, when you know when just beforehand that you were talking talking rubbish, mm -hmm. and um, so Jakara was not aware of what the other girl, the other five girls had gone before her. Yep. Obviously, a couple of them had 
put on pretty good scores. Not unbeatable, obviously, as it turned out, but pretty good scores. So she was totally unaware of what anyone had done. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. De- deliberately, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and they tend to have the, the mic quite loud up there, so yeah. sometimes you can hear scores in. Right, yeah. So I yeah, tend to talk... So you just don't really focus in on those scores coming in. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if it's really loud, the sound cancelling headphones come in handy sometimes. Yeah. But now we were just talking nonsense. Yeah. yeah. So you then just wished her good luck and uh, and off she went. Yeah, uh... I, just te- I tend to remind her, you know, as I said, it's confidence. It's her self-confidence and her belief. Mm-hmm. And um, for her, if she knows she can do it, it's sky's the limit. And that's something she's really worked on so um, you know, right before she pushes out 10 seconds, I just remind her of that and remind her that, you know, do her run and and it's it's her run to do and believe in yourself and, yeah, a couple of little small quotes there and off she goes. Well, let's have a listen. Winner in Alpe d'Huez this season. Been on the podium six of the last seven starts. A former World Championship silver medalist. The Australian goes for gold. And going for that same trick, so the off-axis 7.20, great degree of difficulty, and then charging into the middle section here on the course. Jakara knows she's got to keep these turns together, and then big air on the bottom, reaching back for the new grab. Great run for Jakara. She couldn't do any more, that is for sure. Eight tenths of a second faster on the pace time. Picks up 16.86 time points. That was the uh, the Channel 7 audio of uh, Oppenheim. Now, tell me, you're up the top. You're watching. How much can you see from the, from the top of the uh, top of the course? Can you see? You can obviously see the first bit and her first, the aerial part of her first jump. Yep. Yeah, I can see her first jump, and then as she disappears from the jump top jump I I can't see the landing and that's normally the, the make or break thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is it's normally the make or break of most most of our athletes um and the entry um out of top air so uh, I can't see much until uh maybe just past halfway in the middle section um and then can see the entry into bottom air and as she skis down yeah right and what were you thinking <laughs> well normally I don't I don't stand there normally I, I run out and watch it on the tv screen so I can give her feedback or talk through the run when she comes back up but it was the last run of the night <laughs> there was no one there I think there's tumbleweeds blowing around up there so I thought oh, I'll just stand here and watch um that was a bad idea like, I don't normally get nervous I hadn't really been nervous that day and watching us I, I got nervous as she started skiing into bottom air and I thought wow okay like this is it you know and she skied into bottom air and uh landed and and the bottom air landing bottom section I was nervous because I thought that's it it's done and then I saw her claim and throw her hand up in the air and she she's not a big claimer and and that and I thought okay she's done her run she's claimed and and that's it. So was excited for whatever was to come after that because she'd done her thing. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a what a wonderful moment. Yeah. It was. It was. Um. It was an amazing night. And uh, yeah. And one thing I uh, I I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I had an experience that I I looked after Kathy Freeman after she won her 
her gold medal in uh, in in Sydney, and um, I was fortunate enough to spend the next sort of two or three hours sort of as her minder, if you like. And and the one thing that that struck me about that was that all she could talk about was the relief. You know, she never once said, you know, this is amazing. Wow, this is a fantastic gold medal. She just said, oh, Doc, I'm so relieved. Doc, it's such a relief. I mean, given that Chikara was the favourite, I mean, uh, was her was her feelings elation or relief or, or a mixture? or what, what, what was she like afterwards? That's a good question. I, I think it took a while to sink in. I think it did. But at the same time, she... She knew if she did her run, it was it was hers. Uh, so just more uh, excitement, pure excitement and joy, I would say. Um, yeah, she it was, it was a lot of craziness too. I think yeah. it took it took some time and then waiting twenty four hours for the medal ceremony. I think uh, it was um, and then probably a little bit of relief after um, receiving the gold medal and knowing, it was hers and the work had paid off. I think uh, she believed in the process um, that, was, that we set out and she'd done the work and, yeah, just joy, absolute joy. Now, I'm, I'm no expert on moguls, but it's, it seemed to me that, the, that I mean, her turns are, are, are fantastic. They're the best of, of anyone. But it was really that first air. That uh, so explain the degree of difficulty sort of uh, situation and what what you guys did compared to what the other uh, the other uh, skiers were doing. Yeah, so to put it in perspective as well, four years ago the gold medal run uh, and the run that Jakara did was a three sixty up top, which is just one rotation um, in an upright position. Uh, obviously, the sport has come a long way in the in the ladies' side, and so she was doing a cork seven. 20 so two rotations in an off-axis position and then she had a, uh, a mute which is a grab so she grabs the ski tweaks it which is uh, to present the grab to the judge um, while she's doing two rotations in an off-axis position so what do you mean by off-axis uh, not quite upside down but not vertical right okay yep so a blink uh, sort of thing yeah yeah so um, it is a very tough um, jump and, and much more difficult than the upright 360. Um, to put it in perspective, uh, no man or perhaps one man was doing it in the men's competition wow. and she was the only girl to do the cork seven mute in the, in the ladies' side. Right. So uh, it... It's been, it was in the plan. It was the plan all the way along. Um, Pete McNeil and herself came back from Pyeongchang and, and that was the plan. And I remember coming back and, and from America and, and they said, this is what we're going to do. And I was like, all right, okay. Um, <laughs> wow, really setting the bar high, guys. Um, but there was never, never a doubt and we stuck to the plan and worked towards it. And um, Jakara really worked on her jumping from, from the age of 13 where she, she was scared to do a backflip mm -hmm. to be doing the hardest and the most difficult uh, jump in the women's side in Beijing um, and at excellent execution as well. Um, you know, it, it, it requires you to jump higher because there's more rotations um, and to be able to present the grab properly you know, it's 
it's a, it's a tough trick. And um, yeah, so she did it. <laughs> she did Had she do done it. it at a number of the World Cups beforehand? Yes. Yeah, so um, as I said before, Jakara, she's a perfectionist. Um, we thought about whether you just bring it to the Olympics and that's mm. what you do. How, and uh, but she needs to do it a lot of times to build that confidence and find it. And every mogul course is different. It, it's not like a swimming pool. It's mm. you know each jump um, can can vary in degree of the angle of takeoff as well as the height. And so we needed to do it. So she began doing it at the first World Cup this season in Ruka. Um, and competed all the way through the, the World Cup circuit. So at eight different events on eight different courses, gave her the experience because we had we'd not been to Beijing. Normally they run a test event the year before. So you know what you're going into, but every country went in blind. So we wanted to make sure we were ready and she could do the trick no matter the jump. Yeah. And in training, she'd always pulled it off? In Beijing, leading up to it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. It... Um, a little bit of adjustments here and there. Sometimes it's hard to get the direction right. So not only to perform the trick, but also to land it in the right spot that you can exit back into the moguls. That's mm. one of the hardest things. And that's why the top air becomes so difficult. That, yeah, that seemed to just, again, just the, the uninitiated observer, that seems to be the key moment of the whole thing is that landing from the first uh, the first jump, which she didn't quite get right in the uh, yeah. in the second final. Yeah, F2. Yep, she uh, went a little yeah. bit right yeah. and she needed to take it left. So, and uh, But she yeah. got it absolutely right in the... Because uh, she was able to adjust. She realised what she did wrong and, and was able to adjust. To yeah, it. and that's one of Jakara's strengths. She can make those minute adjustments from run to run through an event even, um, which is, you know, makes a big difference to be able to make those fine-tuned adjustments even right when it matters. So in the future, I mean, Jakara's going to keep going. She, she's already said she wants to, uh, <laughs> Most to, definitely. to ski in the next Olympics. Um, and presumably uh, all the other girls will start doing those, that, that same aerial, uh, that first air uh, trick. So you're going to have to come up with something even, uh, even bigger and better. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Um, it's definitely uh, back to the books a little bit here. Um, but she's definitely got her eye on, on going one more, which is a cork 1080. So that would be three oh. rotations, oh. which some of the best men do on the bottom air. Right. So uh, that would be, would be a goal to go for yeah. and jumping bigger and skiing faster as well, you know, just to keep pushing, yeah. pushing the ladies' side. So, yeah. It's mm -hmm. And so in the, the immediate future, is that uh, you and Pete and Jakar are all back in Europe for the remainder of the World Cup uh, program? Tell us what's, uh, what's, ha what's left of the program and, and where is Jakara sit in everything? Yeah, so we head out on Saturday back overseas. Uh, there's three uh, starts left in two locations. So we have an event in Valmalenko, Italy, and then Mejev, France for World Cup finals for a singles event, and then a duels mogul as well, where you go down two at a time knockout right. system. Mm, okay. And uh, the we will head back and just look to do six days training first. Don't want to go straight back into the boots without some ski time. Yep. Head to those three events. The Jakara is currently sitting first overall on the World Cup circuit. Um, and then she's currently ranked third in the singles moguls side of it. So 
she's looking to win that. Um, again, those two girls mentioned previously are, are sitting there. So it's very tight on the World Cup circuit and she's looking to win that Crystal Globe, which is the overall World mm. Cup title. Um, she's placed on the podium before, but she's never been able to get her hands on that Crystal Globe, which is uh, a big goal of hers. So that's that's what we're heading back over for couple more events. Very exciting. Yeah. yeah. No rest. No rest. <laughs> and then, then you come home, you have a little break, and then it's back onto the, the, the water ramps and the... Yeah. And it, then hopefully some snow. Yeah, yeah. It's an exciting time for moguls. Uh, we'll have some retirements from other athletes um, that have been in the system for 15 years on scholarship since they were 15 or, or so long. So we're um, looking, you know, for some new some new talent and it's I'm quite excited about it. We're looking at some young athletes uh, from Victoria and New South Wales to uh, put forward and start working towards 2026 and, and 2030. You would hope that Amanda is obviously a wonderful role model and would inspire lots of, uh, of young uh, Australians to, to take up the mogul skiing. It's uh, I just can't, you know, get my head around the fact that Australia has won a uh, a skiing gold medal. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> my mindset keeps going to the Jamaican bobsledders, you know. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's amazing yeah. enough that they were even there, let, let, you know. I mean, uh, you know, t for a country like, like ours where, you know, as we said, sometimes we don't even have a snow season and sometimes it's, you know, two weeks or three weeks or, or whatever. Um, to achieve that in a com and competing against all the, you know, the the massive uh, skiing countries of the world are, you know, I'm not sure people in Australia really realise. And, and without downgrading any of the previous um, gold medalists, I mean, you know, two were aerialists who, who are basically gymnasts who are not skiers, really. Mm -hmm. Dale Begsmith was really a Canadian, who spent most of his life in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Tora Bright was a snowboarder and so on. So this is really the first homegrown mm. skier um, to win, uh, obviously Zali Stegel did very well and won, won you know, world championships and, 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 and so on. But uh, this is the first homegrown skier uh, of Australia to win a, a gold medal. It's just absolutely remarkable uh, achievement, I think. You know, if you're ranking, you know, great Australian sporting performances, this has got to be right up there because uh, the degree of difficulty, I guess, is, uh, you know, is just so, uh, so hard. So, Katie, congratulations to you and, and you know, I know you always downplay your role and, and, and obviously Pete, Pete uh, does a fantastic job as well but the two of you have done an amazing job with, uh, with Jakara um, good luck for the rest of the World Cup and uh, thanks for coming and uh, coming on the Brookie and Berger podcast we, we've, I don't think we've ever had a gold medal coach before so uh, <laughs> it's a privilege for us so thanks a lot Katie thanks for having me guys <laughs>